are going to be in Luke chapter 13, and we're going to be in verses 10 down through 21. Before we get there, though, um, as Danny mentioned before, we are week three of four in a series on how Jesus is building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the question at hand today is, why church planting? That's our question. Uh, If you've been coming to Gospel Hope Church for any period of time, um, it may be surprising, it may not be surprising to you, but you hear a lot about um, plans to church plant at this church. And I, for one, am very thankful for that. Our pastors, who lead us and shepherd us well, point us beyond what God is just doing here to what God wants to do elsewhere also. Um, They're not about building uh, a little miniature kingdom here. They're about advancing the kingdom throughout this valley and other parts of the world. So we hear a lot about that, and you may, you may respond positively. You may be, hey, I'm all about that. how How can I jump in? How can I be involved? You may be kind of neutral to it, where it's kind of like, yeah, good to hear, um, keep me posted <laughs> on what happens. Or, and, and this is understandable, but you may kind of receive it a little negatively because you're thinking, hey, I like what we've got going on here. <laughs> Why would we mess this up? Um, I love Gospel Hope Church. Maybe you just started coming here or just joined not too long ago, and you're thinking to yourself, um, I just got here and we're already talking about the potential of people moving on to go plant other churches. Uh, I know I'm kind of supposed to be happy about that, but I'm not really. Um, Danny mentioned a couple weeks ago the, the possibility and the, and the prayer request for the Inafuku family as they look at potentially planting on Oahu. And you're like, I like those people. I don't want them to leave. What, why, would we, why would we push for this? It's kind of like I, I have the unenviable um, privilege as part of my job to um, let people know that they got a raise this year. And usually we would think that's a positive thing. But if you've ever told somebody they got a raise, it's almost never the amount that they wanted. So you, you know, I get on the phone with them and I'll be like, hey, I, I mostly work with people who are remote-based. So I get on the phone with them and I'll be like, ah, thank you for all your work this year. You've done such a great job. I appreciate all your effort. And uh, because of that, we would really like to give you a raise. And the raise looks like X. And it's not uncommon, you know how this goes, There's, it's not uncommon for there to be like this pregnant pause and then kind of a, oh, yeah, thank you. And you know they're going, I can't believe you only, that's all I'm worth to these people. They're supposed to be happy, they know they're supposed to be happy, but they're not really happy. You may think that about church planting right now. You may be going, I know I'm supposed to like this but I'm not all about it. That's our task at hand, to answer that question. And I think especially our question this morning is why should all of us care deeply for and invest heavily in the cause of church planting? That's our question today. And we're gonna go to Luke chapter 13 in order to answer that question. So, let's read that text and then we will dive into what's going on in this text and what it has to do, what in the world it has to do with church planting. Verse 10, now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. 
When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus is in the synagogue. No, no, let me just stop for a second. We're going to focus those last verses there, 18 down to 21. We're going to spend a significant amount of time focusing on those and what those have to do with church planting. But what we cannot do is jump right to those verses without understanding the preceding context because this context has everything to do with what Jesus says in these verses. Do not miss this connection. This is huge. Jesus is in the synagogue on a Sabbath. If you read through the Gospels at all, you see Jesus often doing stuff on the Sabbath because often the religious leaders of the day are opposed to Jesus doing something on the Sabbath. They're usually mad about something that Jesus is doing, keyword doing, because they had, they had added to God's law from, from the Torah. They had added to God's law, and um, they had added a bunch of rules surrounding the Sabbath, a bunch of rules God never gave. They gave, and now they're trying to catch Jesus in all of those mess-ups that he has, apparently, on the Sabbath day. You're used to seeing Jesus on the Sabbath day doing something. In this particular instance, he's in the synagogue. Luke mentions it twice here, and then he mentions it's the Sabbath five times. The reason he does that, in part, is to let us know this is important. The setting is important, okay? This is important for a few different reasons. One is, this is the first time we see Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath since chapter 9. We, don't, we won't go back there, but in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the reason that's, that is important is because Jesus set his face. If, if you read in the Old King James, I think it is, Jesus set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. That means he was on his march to go die. This is the first time we see Jesus in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath since then. It's also the last time we will see him teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath until he goes and dies in Jerusalem. But what is most important here about this setting is if we go all the way back to Luke chapter 4, and we'll go there in just a second, but if we go all the way back to Luke chapter 4, we will see Jesus at the very beginning of his earthly ministry 
giving his inaugural address of his earthly ministry, and he's giving it in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what's important about that is, in that address, Jesus tells everyone why he's come. He lets them know, this is my mission. This is what I've come to fulfill. This is what I've come to do, okay? Back to chapter 13 for a second. We just read, again, synagogue, Sabbath. As he's teaching, and Luke, Luke does a great job of letting us know that Jesus is at center stage. He says he's, he's the one teaching. You know, we just read about the synagogue ruler. Luke is showing, kind of maybe passive-aggressively, Luke is showing who the real ruler of the synagogue is. Jesus is at the center. He's the one teaching. He's the one with the true authority, okay? He's teaching, and as he teaches, he sees a lady in the audience who has been bent over for 18 years. She has been disabled. Her body has been crippled for 18 years. And what Luke is keen to let us know is that this isn't just a physical malady. It's not just some diagnose, a medical diagnosis. He says... She has been bent over by a disabling spirit. And and Jesus later says, she has been bound by Satan for 18 years. Can you imagine the excruciating pain she's dealt with for this long? She has been bent over for 18 years. And there is both, Luke is keen to show us, there is both a physical malady here as well, well as a spiritual one. It's very important. But... What we don't know is, is this woman possessed by a demon? We don't know that. That's not what the scripture says. It says, though, that she has been bent over. And can you imagine how pressed to the margins of her society, of her community, she has been for so long? She has been pushed aside. She has been ostracized. She's a nobody. She is unimpressive. She's nondescript. She has probably felt on the outs for years and years and years. And Jesus invites her into the center. He invites her to center stage And this is what he says to her, woman, you are freed, freed. Don't forget that term. That term in this context and back in Luke 4, where we'll go in just a second, is critical to understanding this whole thing that's going on. Freed, you could substitute the term liberty, depending on which translation you're reading. Liberty, set at liberty, released, okay? Any of those terms, you could use those interchangeably here, but he says, woman, you are set at liberty from, you are released from your disability. Released. Now let's go back to Luke chapter four for a second. If you, if you want to turn over there, you can. If not, I'm just going to read it. It's on 859 if you're wanting to turn there in one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you. Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 16, Jesus inaugurating his earthly ministry. Okay, he just just come out of the, the, the wilderness where he has been tempted by Satan for 40 days. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is coming from Isaiah 61 and actually a little bit from Isaiah 58. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this would have been like major chills moment, okay? And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine sitting there? The, the, the Isaiah scroll that he read from was talking about the Messiah, the Messiah that these people had all grown up hearing about, reading about throughout the entire Old Testament text. And now the guy who they watched grow up in Nazareth, the carpenter's son, Mary's son, the guy who, yeah, he was an exceptionally good kid, like weirdly good. And he had maybe like a pretty unusual start to his life. Mary's pregnant all of a sudden. Joseph's not mad about that. And then they're gone for a census taking in Bethlehem, Joseph's home city, and then they're gone for two years. And then they're back. But then they watched Jesus grow. And he's around 30 years old at this point, and he gets up and he reads in the synagogue. He'd been to the synagogue every week, every week, every week, every week, every week for his entire upbringing. And he gets up and he reads from Isaiah. He sits down and everybody's looking at him like, what's going on? And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah you've been waiting for, that's me. And what's critical is he just told everybody why he had come. Not only who he was, but why he had come. Look back. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then look at this. He sent me to proclaim liberty. That word liberty is the exact same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 13 to say, woman, you're set at liberty. You're freed. You're released. To set at liberty those who are oppressed... He has sent me to proclaim liberty, same word, to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, same word, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus not only claims to be the one for whom his people had been waiting, he also tells them, this is why I've come. My ministry is one of bringing release, is one of bringing liberty, is one of bringing freedom. He has come to bring release to people bound by sin and its consequences. That's what he's come to do. Sin has not only broken us, it has broken our world. And we're at fault. And we feel its effects daily. And Jesus said, I've come to free you from that. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing. Now go back to Luke chapter 13. Again, back in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what he does here is he puts on full display. The last time we'll see him in a synagogue on the Sabbath, he puts on full display. I didn't just say why I came, I'm doing it. And he does it in a pretty nondescript, of course, not, not nondescript to the synagogue ruler, he got pretty mad. But he does it in a pretty nondescript way with an unimpressive lady who has been bent over by Satan for 18 years. And he releases her from her bondage. And again, Luke was very keen to let us know there was a spiritual and physical component here. This wasn't just a physical malady. This was, this was spiritual. And Jesus came to release her. Elsewhere in Luke and Acts, if we went, if we went and did a study on this term in the context in which it's used, Luke, who writes both, you know, he is keen to use this not only in the sense of like physical release, he's keen to use it in the sense, and it'll even be translated as forgiveness. 
There's a dual component here. Jesus came to free us from our sin. And sin, as we all know, has far-reaching consequences. There's a great uh, album uh, we, our kids love to listen to, and if you have kids, you probably have listened to it too. If you don't have kids, I would still recommend it. It's called Theology. It's a great album that is a great way to teach your kids theology, just as it, say, as it says. And one of the songs is about sin and its consequences. And one of the lines that we repeat with our kids often, often, because we need to often, is sin hurts everybody. We know that's the case. We feel it every day. And Jesus has come to bring release. He brings physical and spiritual release. One, one more time, review this woman again. She's a nobody. She's probably ostracized because of her disability. She's oppressed both physically and spiritually, yet Jesus calls her to himself and brings her healing and release. And God is glorified through that. Except through what we read next. Let's go on this, this aside here. The synagogue ruler. He responds and he is totally indignant, right? He is angry. And he shows absolute disrespect to Jesus and um, tries to reassert himself as the true ruler of the synagogue, as the one with authority, because we read, he gets up and he addresses this whole issue of Jesus apparently doing something that violates the Sabbath, claiming Jesus is working on the Sabbath. And he gets up and he doesn't address Jesus. It's a direct affront to his authority. He doesn't address Jesus. He addresses the crowd. And he tells the crowd, and you just read this and you go, oh, this awakes like this sense of justice in your heart. Like, you have to be kidding me. He gets up and he says, you guys have six days of the week that you can come in here and get healed on. <laughs> like, what? You have six days. Come get healed on one of those days. Jesus isn't having this, though. <laughs> Jesus loves people too much. He gets back up and he says, you hypocrites. Because probably there are on the periphery those who just seem to follow Jesus around on the Sabbath day trying to figure out a way to catch him, the religious elite, the people that everybody would have looked at for spiritual and moral guidance in their lives. They would have looked at them as the good people. Jesus looks at all of them around the room and he says, you hypocrites. And then he gives a little argument from the lesser to the greater and he says, you all are fine with untying your ox or your donkey and leading them away to water on the Sabbath day. A little side note, that means money to them. They can't afford to have those, those animals die. That's money. But you're totally fine with that. And Jesus doesn't have any quibble with that either. It's fine. Like you would expect to do that. But then he says, how much more should we heal a daughter of Abraham and loose her from her bondage to Satan on the Sabbath day? That's what this whole thing's about. Not only does the synagogue ruler miss the importance, the significance of what Jesus just did, he misses the whole reason why he did it. And Jesus makes the point here, I came to heal people who know they need it. I came to heal the people who know they're sinful, who know they're broken by their sin and its consequences and need release. I did not come 
to call the ones who are self-righteous legalists who think that somehow their works are enhancing or giving them their position before God. And he completely puts the synagogue ruler in his place. And it's, it, we, we see it, Luke just gives a little narrative here and he says, um, they were all, all his adversaries were put to shame. And Jesus then elevates this woman, again, the unimpressive, nondescript woman, he elevates her with just the term daughter of Abraham. Abraham was a hero of the Jewish people. He was the, the start of the Jewish people. So they venerated, they venerated Abraham. And he says, she's a daughter of Abraham. She should be loosed. That's what's important here. Jesus doesn't come to call the self-righteous elite to himself. He comes to call those who know they need him. The religious leaders, they're hypocrites. The disabled lady, she's a daughter of Abraham that he's released. If we were to go over to Luke chapter 15, we would read a very similar theme, a story that is very familiar probably to many here. It's the story of the prodigal sons. And I say sons because there are two brothers in that story, right? We all remember the, the younger brother, who um, basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance early. Dad, sell all the land that you had set aside for me, liquidate it, and give me the money. I'm going to go do what I want. He goes into a far country. This is a parable. He goes into a far country. He spends it all. He wastes his money on total debauchery. And then he runs out of money. He runs out of friends, and there's a famine in the land. And he finds himself in a pigsty trying to eat what the pigs eat pigsty, Jewish boy. Those don't go together. And on top of that, he's starving. So he's sitting there, and, and, and Jesus says, finally he comes to himself and he says, I'm, I'm not worthy to be called my father's son anymore. But I do know my father's servants, they have enough to eat and they have enough to spare. I'm going to go back to my father, beg his forgiveness, let him know clearly I don't expect to be your son anymore. You can't treat me like that. I'm not worthy. But could I be a servant? And we know the story. He, he heads back toward his father. And when he's a far distance off, says the father saw him. It's a beautiful picture of God and grace. The father is a picture of God, the father. The father sees him a long ways off. And this would have been totally anti-patriarchal to do this. Patriarchs didn't run. They definitely didn't hike up their robes and run. Jesus says the father hikes up his robes and he sprints to his son. And before his son can get that whole speech out about how he doesn't deserve to be his son again, his father falls on his neck, kisses him, calls for the servants, bring the best robe, bring the family signet ring, put it back on his son, effective immediately. This is my son. Now go kill the fatted calf, which means put on this super expensive party, invite the whole neighborhood, we're celebrating, we're partying tonight because my son was lost, he's found, he was dead, and he's alive again. And it's an awesome picture. Until you get to the last few verses of the parable, when Jesus says, there's the older brother who never left. He was always there. He didn't go waste his money on prostitutes. He probably should have been the one, because he's the older brother, he probably should have been the one to go out and get his younger brother, which he never did. And he's incensed. He's this synagogue ruler. He is angry. Because he says, I've been with you all along. I've conformed. I've done everything you said. And you never so much as gave me a little party with my friends. 
exposing his heart. His heart was all about wanting the father's stuff. He didn't want the father. He wanted what the father gave. He wanted what the father represented, but not the father. What's significant about that that ties back into this narrative as well and so many throughout the Gospels? You see this over and over and over again. The older brother is left outside of the feast. The parable ends abruptly. abruptly. The older brother's left outside. Further pressing home the point that Jesus came to bring release to people who know they're in their sin. But now what's the connection because now we're getting to verses 18 to 21. What's that connection there? Why are these two, te- these two parts of the text tied together so closely? Well, we could look at it and say, well, it, it seems like there's a total about face here, that Jesus is addressing something totally different. But look at the beginning of verse 18. He said, therefore. So he, Luke uses that term, therefore, to show us this is, number one, it's immediately following what just happened, but it's also connected back to what just happened here. And we have nothing in the text that would indicate that this is in a different setting. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but the text doesn't indicate that. Quite possibly, Jesus, still at center stage, gives these next two examples of what the kingdom of God is like. So it's right after he's just healed this woman, he has just released her, The synagogue ruler gets angry, and that whole thing happens. Now, it's connected to what Jesus says next. And what does Jesus say say next? Let's read it one more time. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. That would have been somewhere around 60 pounds, or once that bread was baked, it'd feed about 100 people until it was all leavened. What's the connection? This is a big one. Like I said earlier, this part of the text has everything to do with what came before it. Jesus gives two examples of what the kingdom of God is like. And what's, what's funny, what's also just like, yeah, that's Jesus, He gives not two philosophically rich examples. He doesn't give um, examples to which the the elite of his day would have related really easily. He doesn't go into some deep theological diatribe. He gives two very simple examples to, to which very simple people could relate. People that lived in an agrarian society, they would recognize seed and they'd recognize yeast because he's talking to the people who are unimpressive (laughs) and know it. And what he says is the kingdom of God is both like a mustard seed. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? Super, super tiny. And it's like yeast, little granules of yeast. The seed a man puts in the ground in his garden and it grows and it doesn't just grow into a plant, it doesn't just grow into a shrub, it grows into a tree that the birds of the air come and make nests in. The little tiny granules of yeast that this woman works into about 60 pounds of flour, it invades the whole of that lump of flour enough to where a hundred people could eat it just from a little handful of yeast. What in the world does this have to do with what just came before it? If you're sitting there in that audience going, wait, we just went from that 
our synagogue ruler freaking out at Jesus to being called a hypocrite. Now he's overstanding in the corner, licking his wounds, and now Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Where, how do we get here? Think about it. The mustard seed and the yeast, both very tiny, almost indistinguishable, almost unnoticeable. That is how the kingdom of God starts, Jesus says. You don't even notice it. Both mustard seed and yeast, or leaven, work very gradually. That's, that, that seed in the ground, that guy's not going to see anything come out for a long time. And then when he does see it come out, it's going to be really tiny for a really long time. You don't watch, you don't sit around and watch trees grow. You're like, oh, oh, I noticed that. <laughs> no, you don't, and neither would have this guy. It works gradually. When you, um, I'm, I'm no baker, so please excuse me if I get all of this wrong, but you put yeast into flour, right? You work it in, you make your dough, and you kind of like butter that bowl and you stick the dough in, and then you put a, a towel over it, right? It's not all of a sudden you put the towel over it and then pull it off and it's like, <laughs> yes, no. It works gradually. That's how the kingdom of God works. It expands and expands and expands, and you don't even know what happened until it's a tree, and you're like, wait, where did that, where did that come from? I don't even remember planting it. I don't even remember who planted it, because they're not even alive anymore. <laughs> That's what the kingdom of God is like. And it expand, both mustard seed and yeast expand, because that's how God made them. But they have far-reaching influence. They're expansive. And we didn't make it happen. You put the seed in there, you didn't pull it out gently and, and reshape it until it's fully a tree. You didn't put the yeast in there and cause it magically to expand throughout that entire lump of dough. It just happens. What's the connection then back to verses 10 through 17? And second, what's the connection to church planting? <laughs> First, Think about this, back to verses 10 through 17. It's Jesus' mission of release from sin, having its full effect in bringing physical and spiritual freedom to people like this disabled woman. He just put on display, it has a very innocuous beginning. This lady didn't impress anybody. There were no fireworks here other than like she got healed, but she wasn't like some politician or some somebody within that community he saved someone who was nondescript, who was on the margins. He saved someone who knew they needed it. But just in that little picture, it's a microcosm of what he was bringing to the whole world. Because in just a few chapters, we're going to read about the fact that he would go all the way to the cross and put on supreme display the launch of the kingdom of God. Because when he goes to that cross... He dies and he takes on the sins of the world to save sinners like you and me. Jesus puts on full display his authority over sin and its consequences by going and being made a sin offering for us even though he had never done any sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is showing in this little picture in verses 10 through 17, this is what I've come to do for sinners the world over and throughout history to bring release and forgiveness from sins. This is the message of the gospel. The way the kingdom grows and expands is through the spread of that message, as gradual as it might be, as 
frankly, as seemingly unnoticeable as it might be. Those of you who have lived here for decades, maybe you look back and you're like, I don't even know how we got here, that we have so many believers just even sitting in one room. The kingdom works gradually, it expands, but it expands through this message, Jesus' mission to bring release for sinners from their sin, and doing so through insignificant people like this disabled woman, and like you, and like me. For every nondescript and broken sinner like this lady that has been forgiven and freed by Jesus, his mission is now ours. That's the connection to church planting. Church planting is just the expansion of the kingdom of God. It's kingdom advance. Every new church that is faithful to Jesus' mission is another evidence that Jesus just continues to grow it and grow it and grow it and expand it till it fills the earth. If we've found freedom in him, why in the world would we keep this to ourselves? And that's why the kingdom advances. Jesus doesn't just delight in bringing release from sin to people like you and me. He delights in calling us to be part of that mission, of his mission of release, and to do that for his kingdom advance. So let's just think about a couple things here. Nothing that we haven't already said, but let's say it a little bit more specifically. First of all, when we think of this in terms of church planting, think of two things. One is kingdom advance happens through unimpressive people like you and me. That's critical. Again, Jesus didn't heal the synagogue ruler. He healed the woman that nobody thought about. Jesus healed the nondescript lady and called the religious elite hypocrites. And Jesus uses little, nondescript, non-powerful, messed up people like her and you and me to advance his kingdom. So let me just say this. If you're here today and you feel like that woman, you feel messed up. You're like, number one, I am, I am sinful. I cannot I try and I try and I try and I try to fix myself and it never works out. In fact, I keep digging myself into a deeper hole. And I feel like I'm just hanging by a thread all of the time. I'm not worthy. I'm not impressive. I don't even feel like anybody should love me or could love me, let alone the ruler of the universe. If you feel like that, Welcome home. Welcome. This is the place for you. Because everybody else in here who's following Jesus, we are messed up. We are nondescript. We are unimpressive. And Jesus says, I specialize in people like you. (laughs) That's his specialty. If you're here and you think you're awesome, probably not the place for you we will all be dragging you down. (laughs) If you feel like you are broken by your sin, this is the place for you. And Jesus is here to bring you release and forgiveness like you've never expected and you've never thought was possible. And Jesus expands his kingdom through people like us. How awesome is that? 
I don't deserve to be a part of this. You don't deserve to be a part of this. But he delights to make us part of this. That's his joy. That's what he's doing in the earth. Jesus uses people who know they need release to further his mission of release to sinners and that to the ends of the earth. So Jesus expands his kingdom through unimpressive people like you and me. Second, Jesus' kingdom advance is inevitable because his authority is irrefutable. Think about this. Back to 10 through 17. We're not going to read it again, but think about this. He releases this woman, and, and, and we're so used to Jesus' miracles as you read through the Gospels that it kind of just becomes humdrum. This is not humdrum. The lady was bent over. She was crippled for 18 years, and Jesus, in one little phrase, fixes her. <laughs> and she stands up, and she's like, what just happened to me? And she glorifies God. But he's the one who brought her release. And in doing so, he showed both his power over Satan, because she was bound by Satan, and over sin and its consequences. That's authority. And just a few chapters later, he will show his supreme authority by having victory over death. He's going to go die on a cross, he's going to be buried, and then he's going to get back up of his own accord. Nobody else can do that, but he did. So he shows his authority the world over, and when he gets back up from the grave, he gets up in front of his disciples, and before he ascends back to heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Therefore, go make disciples. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, he was raised to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. He has total authority. He looks out over all creation, and he claims it is his because it is. So when he says he's going to expand his kingdom, albeit ever gradually, albeit starting with very um, inconspicuous beginnings, he's going to make it expand. He's the one who has the authority to get it done. That's why this whole series is about Jesus saying, I will build my church. It's going to happen. He's going to accomplish it with or without us, but he's going to get it done. Jesus will be the one to bring full expansion of his kingdom, but he invites, again, unimpressive people like you and me to join his conquest. And I apologize, kind of, if I'm insulting everyone's self-esteem by continually referring to all of us as unimpressive. But I don't really apologize for that. He's inviting us to function as ambassadors for his kingdom, to invite those outside to come in, to invite those bound by sin and its consequences to be released by the forgiveness of the great physician. That's what he invites us to be a part of, but he's going to accomplish it. So that takes a ton of pressure off of us. I'm not the one who can, dis who can heal the disabled woman. Neither are you. We are that disabled woman. And now he invites us, go tell everybody, go invite other people to come into the kingdom. Have you ever been to an Apple store? It's like a religious experience almost, right? You walk into an Apple store and they have all these people in probably like blue or all blue shirts or all red shirts or whatever the, shirt, the color of the shirt is that day. Uh, the genius bar people, right? And you walk in there and you have something wrong with your Siri or something wrong with your laptop or whatever, when you walk in and it is like Apple products can do no wrong. Like these people, they number one are there to fix them, but they're total apologists for Apple products. Like you just get this sense, you use a PC? Are you serious? 
Does that even work? You use something to make your phone calls that isn't made by Apple? They're apologists, they're ambassadors for their brand because they totally believe in its abilities, right? They, they love Apple products. You meet people like that. Everything they own is made by Apple, and they're like, oh, you gotta use this. I don't even see how anything else works. But they're ambassadors because they have total belief in it. That is a terrible example of who the people of God are to be, but hopefully you make the connection. We have been changed, released by Jesus, been given forgiveness of sins. That's been a reality, and if it hasn't been a reality in your life, uh, come today and receive that forgiveness. It's as simple as that. But come today and receive that forgiveness. But once you have, you know what's happened in your life. I know what's happened in my life. I cannot keep this to myself. I have to go be an ambassador for this. And do you know what new churches are? Do you know what church plants are? We could frame it this way. Church planting is the setting up of ambassadorial outposts for the kingdom. That's what church plants are. That's what existing churches are called to be. That's what Gospel Hope Church is called to be right now. An ambassadorial outpost for the king. To send out more and more people to go tell people of the mission of Jesus, and that is to bring release from sin. So when we talk about church planting being something that every one of us should be all about, we're just all about the kingdom. That's what we're called to be. That's, that's it. And I totally get the mentality that would say, but I like this place. I love the people that are part of Gospel Hope Church. But friends, this is your life and mine, as Daniel reminded us last week from James chapter four in Equip class, your life and mine is a, it's a breath. It's, and it's gone. I promise you, not because it's up to me, because it's up to Jesus, I promise you, we will spend forever with each other. So what's awesome about it is we can release our hold off of what our little mini kingdom, we want, we want that to look like, and we can say we're about Jesus' kingdom. So bring on as many more church plants as we possibly can have from this group. Because that's every single one of those is Jesus showing again and again and again in this valley and on Oahu, and anywhere else that he's advancing his kingdom, and nothing's going to stop it. And every single one of those new outposts that is all about Jesus' mission of freedom and release from sin, every single one of those is another evidence of his authority over sin and its consequences. And it's more and more opportunity to call those who know they need a physician, but they don't know who he is yet, it's a way to bring them home. So that's why, that is why, we should be all about this. Church planting, that concept, is not for a select few. It's for every single one of us. It's what all of us should be about. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be one to go out and plant a church. It could be. It may not be. But it's something all of us should have a keen interest in. Because church planting should be something that is a priority for every one of us, should be an obvious next step for every existing church, which I'm so thankful that it is here, and it should be something we're all excited about because we're excited about the kingdom. Finally, just three points of bringing this home in our own hearts, some application for us. How, how can we be all about church planting 
at Gospel Hope Church right now because we aren't planting a church tomorrow, right? We're preparing for that. Push your resources to the health of this church. That's one. And it's, that looks like financial. That area out there seems to be clearer and clearer that God might want that for this, for use for this ministry here so that we can reach max capacity. We need more, we need more space for people to meet in so that we can go send some more people out, okay? That's not what this, this building isn't just to be an edifice to uh, some version of Christianity. This is a building for us to come meet in, equip each other, bless each other, serve each other, provoke each other to love, good, uh, love and good works so that we can send more people out of here. Push your resources to this. Financial, time, your inconvenience. Um, you can take risks with your money when it comes to the kingdom of God. You and I can be risky because he has all authority. That allows us to be risky. We typically like to be risky with getting nice stuff for ourselves. Usually being stupid about giving too much money to the church isn't a problem. So I don't even really need to say that. Push your resources and be risky about it. Me too. Release your hold on a selfish approach to church. You need to ask the Spirit for that because that's not going to happen just by your own strength. And a selfish approach means I want it the way it is. <laughs> I like this group. I don't want people to leave. Release your hold on being the one that says, I, I just want to be here. I, I, I have no interest in going and helping start another church. The next church plant that, um, let me maybe, maybe more, make it more appealing to you, the next church plant that Gospel Hope Church might be a part of is on Oahu. <laughs> I don't need to say anything else. But, Release your hold on a selfish approach to church. This isn't about you, and it's not about you and I making our own little kingdoms of our friends that we don't ever let go. And then finally, pray for the kingdom's advance in this valley and throughout the world. If that's not part of your prayers, add it. Maybe it's just a reminder on your outlook calendar <laughs> that dings at whatever time you wake up in the morning to pray for the kingdom's advance here. Jesus' kingdom advance happens through unimpressive people like this disabled lady, you and me, okay? And his kingdom and that advance is inevitable because his power is, his authority is irrefutable. He calls on people like you and me to advance that kingdom with joy and with great responsibility. It should be what we are all about. So everything in our lives should be framed by that concept so that every single one of us should be all about church planting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you that um, he is worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our trust that he will build his church. And then he's worthy of all of the resources that you've blessed us with to pour those back into his kingdom advance so that other people who need a savior will come to him in faith. Can we pray for anyone here who needs to maybe lay their deadly doings down at Jesus' feet or just come to him for mercy and release that they would do so today. Just take a few minutes, if you would, just two, three minutes, and reflect on, number one, the reality of our own sinfulness, the fact that 
we are those objects that, de- that don't deserve release, but Jesus has come for, and spend just a moment reflecting on that and then praising him quietly for what he's done. And then just take a minute or two and pray for the kingdom's advance here. Our Father, we ask you that your kingdom would in fact come. Thank you that you allow an impressive people like us to be a part of it. Empower us, embolden us, strengthen us to go out and invite more people to come in. And use Gospel Hope Church and the other churches who are all preaching your message of release from sin in this valley. Please give us the strength and ability and the resources to plant more outposts for your kingdom. And we pray these things through the name of your Son. Amen.